This is Steve Orleans. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, <laughs> and I'm thrilled to welcome two great old friends, Hui Fan and Lu Feng, uh, to join me <clears throat> tonight to discuss uh, what is going on in China's economy. They are both long-term participants in the Track 2 Economic Dialogue that we've been hosting for 15 years. Um, they've been very productive uh, participants, both when they come to New York and we when we go to beat Beijing. Uh, Dr. Hu is the Regional Chief Investment Officer and Chief China Economist at UBS Wealth Management. Uh, I won't go in through her entire bio, but just to remind people, she is a PhD in economics from Georgetown University. Uh, Dr. Lu Feng is a professor of economics at the National School of Development at Peking University, who is our counterpart organization for our Track 2 Economic Dialogue. And he previously was deputy dean of that school and was selected as best professor of the year at Peking University by students. Um, he is an expert on macroeconomics, principles of economics and managerial economics. Um, when I have questions about China's economy, I turn <laughs> to these two. So they are what I call the experts expert. So let's start off with questions about the recently concluded uh, two sessions. So the, the um, uh, National People's Congress <clears throat> and the uh, China People's Consultative Conference just concluded, and they set targets of around five for 5% 5 growth which was, I guess, slightly below what our expectations, what market expectations were. So what are the major, what's driving that um, prediction or that goal? Let's start with Lu Feng and then we'll go to Yifan. Thank you and good evening, Steve. Uh, uh, happy and to and, uh, join your session again in the internet. So uh, the question, uh, answer this question, I would like to share three points of views. Uh, number one, if you look back uh, uh, over the last few months, actually the mainstream opinion regarding China's economic growth this year has been uh, evolved substantially. Uh, actually at the end of last year, even at the beginning of this year, you know, the Chinese economies inside China, they uh, looking at this year's prospect, uh, not as, uh, how can I say, optimistic as today. Actually, we, we remember in DC and New York, when we talk about this issue with uh, Americans experts on China, Actually, their opinion are, are rather, you know, and gloomy. But uh, after, you know, China get rid, finally get rid of this uh, pandemics, as well as and uh, recent months evidence indicates, the recovery in consumption has been uh, proceeded better than expected. So, I think uh, the mainstream and the uh, objection for this year's growth, growth rate has been, and even higher than 5%, maybe 5.5 or even 6%, depending on different people you talk about. I think uh, uh, the, the two session, of course, of, uh, officially adopted 
picked up the, the, the figure of the 5%, I think mainly, and on the basis of the precautions uh, consideration. Number two, I think it's rather simple to understand the logic of the growth rate projection uh, in China this year. Because last year, uh, because the trouble caused by uh, pandemic, as well as the old policy of the zero and uh, uh, COVID uh, sort of the policy, these policy, these situations and uh, severely dragged down domestic consumption. Uh, and uh, this has been contributed, uh, I think uh, serves as the most important factor and explain why there's a substantial decline of the growth rate last year. But this year, because we uh, entered and, uh, to the post-COVID era, and finally, so I think we get rid of this uh, most important factor. So as a result, I think the consumption will be, uh, have another uh, increase, uh, incremental growth. Uh, something like two uh, percent or three percent on the basis of last year. Last year, consumption only contributed to one percent of the GDP growth. Usually, it contributed to, uh, to three point five or four percent. On the other hand, investment also has been dragged down uh, last year. This year, I think investment can uh, pick it up by additional. 1.5% uh, as well. So in total, I think uh, domestic consumption were contributed uh, to the growth rate of the GDP in, in China, uh, something like uh, 6% or uh, slight, slightly more than that. But because of the export and uh, last year export contributed something like not uh, 0.5% of the GDP growth. But this year, because of the external environment has been changed substantially. I think that this factor will <clears throat> tend to be negative. So in, some, uh, in summary, I think 5% is quite possible and be reached or even you know, exceeded uh, 5%. But if you look in, finally, I want to say over the last 10 years also actually the trend level of China's growth rate has been declined continuously from 10% to about three years average of 6.5% in the three year period immediately before pandemic. So then you can say there's something, you know, and there's still a lot of things China need to uh, do to organize uh, potentially to tap out fully potential of the growth rate. I think a lot of reasons, factors behind that fact, uh, the, the, the decline, secondly, decline of the growth rate. But uh, one of the reasons is still the lagging behind of the crucial areas reform projects or reform agenda. So in order to uh, fully type out the uh, growth potential in future, China still need to uh, face uh, the task of uh, boosting reform. Uh, area, uh, reform policy in certain areas. Okay, thank you. Yifan, what would you like to add to that? Uh, okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, Steve. And uh, like, it's a very nice, like, have chance to uh, have the like, conversation, like, uh, especially like uh, now at this very critical moment of the MPC. So just like, uh, I agree with uh, uh, Professor Liu, 
And just echoing uh, his uh, talk, I would add several points. Uh, first, I think for this MPC, I think that that's a target government set. So that's a Chinese government's KPI this year. And we should say the tone actually is quite pro-growth, but with more, very modest targets. So as Steve just mentioned that the GDP target is around 5%, so relatively modest versus market uh, the expectation. We think one of the reasons is probably the government wants to uh, hold the line too. So it's like uh, it's just like hold, hold the line and uh, don't want to manage expectation. Uh, but the, in reality, we think that we expect this year the 5.5 growth like uh, for forecast on consumption recovery and also resilient investment like uh, Professor Liu already mentioned. So here I also want to add like uh, uh, we also say for the policy side, uh, we see the government actually will have the continued policy easing, albeit no major stimulus. So we think the fiscal policy to be more proactive and effective, as mentioned in the two session. So in our view, and we think the, there's an estimated mega projects already up to uh, RMB 21.4 trillion. So about 3.4 uh, trillion is planned for this year. And also we have the extended tax and fee cuts and the potential consumption supports. And also some local governments already announced EV purchase subsidies and distribute consumption coupons. For the monetary policy side, it's very interesting. And I think it's mentioned to be precise and forceful. So in our view, it's implying more data dependent stance with targeted liquidity support and credit easing. I think it's similar to the US that data dependent policy. And also I think that for the two session, especially mentioned that to boost market confidence. So express support to the private business, including platform internet companies, IP rights and tech innovations. Uh, and also commitment to deepen SOE reforms and further service sector open up. So I think what's on the report is important and also what's not on the report are also important. So we find actually this time, housing is for living, not for speculation. It's not mentioned in the policy outlook. So that means there's an easing tone on the housing policy. So the government actually put more emphasis on the, resolve, uh, the resolving risk of the quality developers supporting the first home and upgraded demand and also uh, some city specific policies. We also think that demand easing measures are expected to continue. These consumption coupons, how do they work? Uh, for the consumption coupon last year, uh, uh, in the 2020, I think it's mainly like uh, issued by the local government. So they gave some like uh, consumption coupons like, uh, uh, like uh, to promote your purchase. The size is not that big. It's mainly in the coast uh, regions and uh, with a better fiscal position of the local governments. And I think that it's totally, it's a less than 1% of the GDP. So I think the size is not big, but just give some like a promotions. Uh, but recently we think the subsidies to the EVs actually is uh, quite uh, uh, aggressive because for the national subsidies uh, ended uh, 
the end of the last year. So I, we think the local government has started to continue. So I think that's actually, it's a, both like a, a booster for the auto sales because the auto sales accounts 10% of total consumption. And also I think it's a promote like an EV uh, as a whole, like uh, in this kind of uh, environment concerns. So if you have HUCO, the, the, the government issues it to everybody who's in a, a particular city. And if you have HUCO there, you get a coupon, which you, you then can exchange for goods. Uh, no, actually, the things become much, much simpler. I think it's not related to HUCO anymore. That's how one of the progress. So uh, I think they just like you simply download the app and just simply mention like uh, which company you work like uh, locally. So you can uh, with your like uh, the ID number, you can get the coupon. And also this coupon can only consume in the city. So I think that no matter it's uh, the people, the residents or non-residents, I think they can all like uh, benefit from this kind of the consumption coupon locally. Based on where you work. Yeah, where you live, where you work. Interesting. What are the, what kind of upside surprises could we see and what kind of downside surprises could we see in terms of the projected 5.5? What could move it to seven or eight and what could drop it to two or three? Okay, that's a very good question. I think just as uh, Professor Liu mentioned, I think for the upside, I would think first coming from the consumption because now currently 5.5 or forecast is based on the consumption as a rebound from the minus zero to two to 7%. But I think that we could have the chance to have like a lower double digit, like a growth, because now uh, based on the high frequency data for, for the since like a Chinese new year, we find the consumption rebound is a much stronger and faster than expected. And also remember, we have that the excess savings about 4.6 trillion during the pandemics. I think that will also give some boost for the consumption uh, together with the government support. So that's like us could be surprised. For the infrastructure side, uh, investment. I think the infrastructure, we already mentioned the mega projects and also mainly sub, uh, sponsored by the special local government bonds issuance. The quota actually is the largest in the history. So it's a 3.8 trillion. So can well cover most of the projects. So we think the uh, plus some of the investment on the manufacturing, like a, like a high-end like manufacturing, including chips, uh, we think that could overall boost up the, like the overall investment. Uh, so if we see the downside, um, I think the exports could be one of the contributors, but exports normally, because it's net exports value added, so it's more like a swing effect, but still could have some like a negative impact. Uh, another risk I can think of is uh, for the real estate side. So this year, last year is a major drag for the GDP growth. So uh, combined the uh, direct and indirect impact, we estimate its contribution to GDP is minus 3%. This year, our forecast is still negative, but narrow to minus 0.3%. But 
if there's um, depends on the market sentiments and also the demand, we, we could think that could be one of the potential risk. But we think the chance is small. About other side, uh, we think the geopolitical pressure or maybe the volatility of the US economy or the financial market all could have some like a negative impact on the like uh, the growth. But overall speaking, we still have the 70% of the confidence for the GDP growth around 5.5%. Lu Feng, what's your view on upside yes, surprises yeah. and downside surprises? Yeah, yes, a good question. I th I also agree that uh, the main and uh, risk is the upside uh, surprise giving the five around five percent projection uh, target set by the government. But I also I also agree with the specific argument by Ifan. But uh, I would like to add some reservation. Uh, consumption has been bounced back quite strongly in the initial two, two months. That is encouraging. But there's also concern because the balance sheets for the family sector, you know, for the household sector has been damaged in the, in the COVID period. So, so I'm not quite sure whether this initial very strong uh, bouncing back uh, would be organizing sustain in the rest of the months of this year. You know, at the end of the day, it is the beginning of this year. So surely, you know, and consumption will recover strongly, but to what extent? I think we still need to see the first quarter and even second quarter uh, data. Number two, uh, infrastructure, I think uh, investment uh, uh, will, will grow and uh, play a very important role. But because there's uh, uh, overdrawing, because the, the in, uh, infrastructure investment has been play, has been relied to a large extent by the government to boost uh, the investment demand in the COVID period. So so to me, I think maybe the, the selection of the projects has been, uh, how can I say, being made that a lot of worry uh, about the diminishing return of these projects. So I will not be surprised that the growth of the infrastructure investment will still be there, but the growth rate will be declined significantly this year compared last year. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Both the premier and the president talk, uh, talked about um, boosting the private sector. What does, that, what does that mean? What should we be looking for in terms of structural reforms and things which are going to allow the private sector, which has been the source of most growth in China for the last 44 years? Uh, what should we look for? Yeah, it is very important question actually in view of the unfavorable situation faced by the private sector entrepreneurs, you know, in recent years, you know, so uh, that has been, uh, have some negative implications for the growth rate, overall growth in China. So this has been uh, obviously a very important topic, uh, policy topic reflected by the two sessions as well as in the uh, Premier Li Chan's first uh, press and the conference. I think maybe the new government will address uh, this issue three 
through several policy and the channels or policy instruments, if you like. And number one is the policy statement that persuasion, you know, sort of guidance, <laughs> sort of guidance. For example, the top leader, uh, Xi Jinping, as well as the new premier, who re-irritated, re uh, re iterated that uh, these uh, and the famous two unwavering principles, okay, and for both of the uh, public and uh, owned uh, sector as well as non-public owned uh, sector. The second, number two, is to improve the opinion of the environment. I noticed that uh, Premier Li Chan mentioned in his inauguration press conference that uh, he said that last year there was some incorrect discussion about the private uh, entrepreneurs, you know, which make the, these entrepreneurs worried and, uh, and nervous. So I think uh, he mentioned this indicates that new government may take some positive measures uh, to guide the public opinion to change in favor of the private sector. And this situation is expected to improve, but underlying, of course, underlying are easy relationships, you know, and in this context may not go away completely in the near future. The number three is to continue the ongoing policy adjustment uh, towards the private sectors, especially in the real uh, estate sector, uh, as well as the internet uh, platform sector, etc. Actually, this policy modification has been started last year already. Recently, uh, you can notice that uh, the, the three red lines regulation measures imposed on the real uh, estate sector has uh, financing, as well as uh, the so-called preventing disorderly expansion of capital regarding the in internet sector are not openly talked or even implemented anymore. So more concrete policy measures aiming to care and nurture private sector may be introduced in due course. Actually this morning, you know, a, a couple of hours ago, I, I listened the radio that says, you know, Hanzhou uh, municipality government has launched a new initiative collaborated with Ali, you know, to help Ali to better perform and uh, how can I more actively uh, function. That is also this kind of policy. Finally, I think it is possible and hopeful that more emphasis will be given to making sure that the future regulatory policy will be designed and conducted inconsistent with the principle and the requirements of the law. The new premier emphasized in his press conference that the government will foster a market-based and law-based business environment in keeping with uh, international standards. Okay, marketization and legalization as well as internationalization. This indicates that if events similar to the regulatory storms in several sectors in 2021 may not occur again, at least for some time to come, the business environment may improve and become favorable to some extent this year and beyond. Thank you. Yifan, on that issue, what does it mean that they're gonna boost the private sector? Um, I agree with uh, Professor Liu. 
<laughs> don't have too much to add here. The um, let's talk about the <clears throat> two parts of a demographic challenge that's talked a lot about in the United States. One is obviously that the workforce of China has peaked. It is now beginning to decrease. And how is the government thinking about that? And the other, it's kind of, it, it's quite different, but is the very high youth unemployment rate and what policies the Chinese government is going to adopt to deal with that. Okay, so I think, uh, uh, sure, both of the China's, uh, the so-called working age population, as well as labor force are declining for several years now. But last year is a turning point in, in that, you know, total population and decreased by something like 780,000. That is the first negative growth, you know, over last six decades, you know, immediately after the farming era in 1961. So that is a turning point. But China is still the country uh, with the largest labor force right now. And the young population, I, uh, I mean young population being the, and aged from 16 to 24. Okay, generally speaking, this range of the aging population are enter for the first time to the, uh, the labor market, depending on their education years. Actually, the young population, youth population, as well as annual growth rates, annual, sorry, annual uh, graduates from tertiary education are still, uh, are both still and growing. This is why uh, the new premier in his press conference said, uh, probably because of this, he said that China's demographic dividend has not disappeared totally uh, yet. And our talent uh, dividend is in the making. So the driving force for China's development remains strong and robust. But saying that, I think actually last year, the unemployment situation are very acute. China suffered uh, special and acute labor market and problems in the last year because of the pandemic, as well as uh, we try to achieve the zero COVID policies. Apart from the high official unemployment rate of 5.5%, something like 0.4% higher than the year before, <clears throat> equivalent to uh, incremental growth of the 190 unemployed laborers additional, okay, 190 uh, unemployment uh, population. Uh, the employment pressure also reflected in the underlying decline of the labor uh, participation ratio, similar to United States. Uh, on my calculation, it has been declined by 2.5 percentage point last year compared before the year before. Uh, 2021. That explained something like, uh, how can I say, 320 million laborers exerted from the labor force. Okay, so in technically, in statistical, statistical area, they regarded as the excess from the labor forces. As a result, the labor uh, participation ratio has been declined. On the other hand, actually, I with my colleagues are doing a, a small project calculate. Actually, there's more than something like 140 million 
migrated workers working in the city, they returned to the countryside because the labor market has been deteriorated. They cannot find a job. They will not have uh, uh, resources to support, you know, their living in the rural urban area. Come back to the issue you just mentioned about the coupon. Uh, that's a total different situation. In the United States, your government is so generous to give a lot of money for the ordinary people. Uh, of course, it's good and to relieve the difficulties, but unfortunately, you have the inflation uh, very high, then you have the you know control inflation, you have the high interest rates, you have the problems like the uh, recent and the crisis of the Silicon Valley and the banks. Okay, but in this country, the the, the resources of the rescue package are mainly goes to the so-called market entities. So in other words, the uh, private enterprises or these kind of employed uh, self-employers but rather than to the ordinary and uh, working uh, population. Okay, that's the totally different. So as a result, in my uh, recent, and right now actually I'm doing a small project on that, I calculated uh, with my colleagues something like uh, 14 you know, million you know, population returned you know, unexpectedly from the urban area to the rural area, to their hometown, to their and hometown of the household registration and uh, hometown. So that uh, disappear of this working population are totally out of the, and the screening of the official unemployment uh, monitoring or statistical coverage. So that indicates the problem. Another problem is the uh, youth unemployment. As, uh, as Steve mentioned, actually, it has been picked on Ju uh, July, something like July, is something like a 19.9 percentage point. Okay, so almost 20% of the youth uh, are unemployed. That has been huge. Uh, problem that is the alarming and problem uh, and a lot of discussion last year. So this year, I think, and this year and beyond, I think the overall unemployment situation will be improved substantially because uh, the macroeconomic situation will be improved. We discussed that already. So as a result, the overall unemployment rate will be declined or converged to the normal level, something like, you know, and four to uh, five point and to the 5%, to 5%, to below 5%, uh, actually. So, so uh, the situation will be improved. Yeah. As, uh, okay. Another favorable factor is the retired population will be increased because the, because the, 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 the newborn, the babies after the farming period, you know, and this population will reach the age of the 60. The 60 uh, is the, uh, the retiring age, official retiring age for the male population. So in from recent year and the uh, next few years, we will see the re retiring population will increase and that will ease the employment and uh, pressure. But uh, youth population will still huge, face huge uh, pressure. Uh, the pressure on the uh, youth unemployment will, will not disappear very quickly, mainly because there's accumulated a lot of the unemployment use 
you know, they were not find that they have not found the work over the last few years. So they wish to find the work this year uh, as soon as possible. On the other hand, a lot of people, they landed on the jobs. They are not favored. They are not uh, as satisfactory. They want to attend to a new, better job. So this year, I think we still have uh, critical the structural problems in the unemployment, that is the use unemployment. So a lot of the uh, policy needed to be introduced actually in the two sessions, as well as in the new premier uh, press conference, they all give the high priority to this area. Yeah. Ifan, anything you wanted to add on that one? The demographic challenge, you're muted. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I think the Professor Liu has already gave a full picture. So I just want to mention that uh, for the government's uh, like target this year for the employment, like for the new jobs is a 12 million. Uh, so it's a similar to the last year. So for the unemployment rate target is 5.5%. Actually, it's the it's relatively the highest in the in history. So that means like uh, for the uh, like uh, for the new jobs, creation of the new jobs is also uh, uh, not easy task. So but that's also the government's like uh, the like uh, uh, ultimate goal. So I think the especially at the premium lease, like uh, media press, uh, he make it very clear. So this year, I think that it's like uh, uh, for the stability, for the growth and also for the new jobs are uh, like uh, the major task of the government. The um, one of the things when I asked about upside and downside risk, um, Neither of you mentioned geopolitical risk. So the risk of a rupture with the United States would certainly reduce Chinese exports. So net exports would be would be substantially reduced. How are people, how are economists in China, not, not political people, thinking about it? Or it's kind of, you know, nothing we can do about it, so we don't really think about it. Um, from the... Economist perspective, I think the for for the tension between China and the U.S. could be a new normal, uh, but we think the the market should be relatively to get used to it as long as the communications continues. So I think that that's very important for the two countries to still remain talks and still can like uh, cooperate in the strategic sectors with the consensus such as the climate changes. So although the two countries, I think they have some uh, fundamental disagreement, or we don't think it can be resolved in the short term, and also especially in the strategic sectors, I think the competition will intensify. Uh, we also noticed like uh, for this kind of the sentiment, like uh, the attitude like of the US maybe to China, especially like uh, for the strategic sectors. I think the, for this kind of the sanctions and uh, uh, entity list, I think that that will become also a new normal. Uh, that's the implication. I think the one of the implication is uh, uh, we don't expect, we don't want to have this kind of decoupling. Uh, but we think that it uh, could be partial decoupling in some strategic sectors like uh, chips or uh, some AI, 5G. 
but on other sectors, so we think the still can have a lot of like uh, areas to uh, cooperate, uh, including this kind of the good treats and also for the, uh, as well as like uh, for climate changes. So uh, hopefully I think the, um, there's a, like a discussion of fights or arguments uh, as long as like has this conversation continue, I think that that's actually, it's a new normal, we need to get used to it. Is there research on the lingering costs on China's economy of the tariffs which were put in place during the prior US administration? In other words, what that, or has China's economy basically adjusted to it and there is no really GDP growth cost to those tariffs? Uh, let me put it this way. Yeah, I think for the trade, for the deal one, for the phase one trade deal, I think for the US and China's tariffs uh, average up to 8%, comparing with uh, three around 3% 3 uh, of the rest of the world. So I guess there's a cost, but who bears the cost? In my view, uh, I think the probably the US consumers actually finally have to pay the cost because like in the past three years, and we say for the China's like, uh, uh, the, like uh, for the trade surplus to the US actually has been increasing rather than decreasing. Yeah. So that means there's a still, there's a need for the Chinese goods. So, but for China side, I think, I guess, I think the, for the exports is more affected by the, like the demand, total external demand, also affected by the, maybe the competitors of the, uh, like a neighbor countries, but for the tariffs, of course, have some impact, but I can, I guess, can be uh, gradually absorbed in the, like, uh, in the, in the, in the prices and transferring to the, uh, the ultimate consumers. So in our view, definitely a low tariffs is a, like a, could be like a more like a win-win game. Lu Feng, anything on that? Yeah, so a uh, very important question. I say the, 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 there's a switching and the effects actually underline the e-finance comments. So you can see your trade with uh, our neighboring countries has been uh, increased, you know, especially in the East Asian countries. So that indicates some trade activities are shifting from this country, bilateral relationships between China and the US to US versus other, you know, neighboring countries of the China. So as a result, of course, the, the, the cost has been increased. The, the, the consumers in America, American consumers were best on uh, this adjustment. But on the other hand, you can see overlook, uh, uh, if you look at the data of the bilateral trade, actually the, 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 over, uh, the, the whole uh, volume of the trade has been and growing as well as the surplus of the bilateral trade has been growing. So in other words, so China has absorbed the tariff, you know, and the uh, pressure imposed by the tariff. So that uh, indicates, so underline the complementary relationships between these uh, two countries are still uh, very and uh, very strong. So uh, come back to the question you mentioned about the uh, geopolitical factors. Uh, all these factors are very important, but I think uh, usually the econo econ economists and approach the issue uh, assessing uh, of the economic situation and in turn to 
say, you know, what's the external environment change in, in that, we will talk about the geopolitical factor, you know, of course, I think there's a consensus that the geopolitical uh, conflict like the Russian uh, Ukraine war, you know, and there were uh, influenced the global economy, including China, as well as American economy. So the prospects of these events will be very important. Apart from that, I think uh, we also and the very and the concern about, uh, for example, the sovereign debt issues, which have close relationships with China's interests, because China has become uh, one of the single most important, the sing, uh, single the bilateral official uh, creditor in these uh, developing countries. That also uh, uh, links to the issue and that how and the international and the communities can collaborate to solve these issues. But the most uh, crucial issue in the external sector is still the bilateral relationships uh, between China and the US. Uh, so as Yifan mentioned, actually the Biden administration has determined and to uh, go uh, ahead the policies so-called the small yard and high fence. That means that uh, in certain technical, high technical areas, there's a barrier will be uh, created and there'll be high fence. That will introduce uh, quite a big challenge for China. Actually, you can see uh, China last year and launched the new initiative of the whole country approach to uh, how can I say to boost the, 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 this high tech sector. And I, I think this year in two sessions and the re uh, structured the, 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 the formal the, the, the technology minister, I think all these uh, movements, policy movements are responding to this environmental change. And so that is a very important issue. But saying that actually you can see, apart from these so-called high fence, small yard areas in which, you know, there's a trade embargo, trade control, or the, all these kind of the entity market entity lists, all these kind of the control measures. But for the ordinary, so-called ordinary trade and service activities, uh, it is to me, uh, my personal observation that uh, the Biden administration take relatively neutral policy approach, at least right now. Okay, of course, uh, they're not uh, moving away the tariff arrangements introduced by, uh, by uh, Trump administration, but uh, there are no, over the last two years or so, there's uh, no additional serious and intervention measures in the so-called ordinary uh, goods and service trade. As a result, we see uh, the bilateral trade has been expanded and the trade service uh, trade uh, surplus has been increased. And so far, uh, the American government take a sort of the mutual approach to that. Uh, but of course, this is uh, how long it will last, we don't know. Uh, I would expect any time, you know, in future, if there's a necessary, the US government will change the policy stance. 
But in my uh, observation, I think maybe this year, even next year, if Biden administration and the Biden administration, I think this policy uh, arrangements may still be there. You know, that creates sort of the uh, temporary peaceful, uh, relatively uh, peaceful environment yeah. for so-called ordinary uh, trade activities to evolve. The financial news in the United States is all about the second largest bank failure in American history, the, the, the failure of, of Silicon Valley Bank. How are people in China thinking about that? And is there any effect on China's economy? So uh, I, I think- Yifan, you, wanna, a, uh, you wanna have Ifan take that one? Yeah. Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, so yeah, for the SVB, I think the actually uh, starting from last Wednesday and especially like uh, make the markets very nervous, like uh, it's a big sale of uh, last Friday and very nervous like uh, last weekend. And unfortunately, like uh, for the Fed and for the Treasury and also FDIC announced a full bailout plan. So make the markets relatively calm down. So during the turmoil, and uh, we uh, noticed that, and first I think the, um, quite a few like uh, for the Chinese, like uh, the companies they also have like uh, the account open in the SVB because like, uh, I guess it's uh, most of the like uh, the tech companies has the direct or indirect relationship with uh, SVB. So SVB is uh, not like a traditional bank. It's more like a P plus VC plus investment bank and plus commercial banks. So it's a, like an innovative model. So it can work very well during the market boom. But now with the like uh, continuous Fed hikes and also with the like uh, the falling like uh, for the like uh, the, uh, the the uh, the the for the treasury bonds and also like uh, for the M, uh, MSBs and also for the especially most like uh, for the uh, for the shrinking uh, tech uh, like uh, the values and I think that's actually give us like uh, multiple hits. So I think the uh, and also especially like. Uh, for, for those banks, I think also have this kind of the mismatching of the assets, like uh, for the durations. And also that's also give another lesson. Uh, overall speaking, I think the, uh, because like uh, now the market is really have the concern on the, for the continuous hikes of the Fed, especially like how actually like the recent tones become much more hawkish uh, starting from last Tuesday. But uh, we guess like how with the FV, SFB, SVB cases could uh, probably Mm, to some extent, uh, make the Fed maybe tone down. So the market have the expectation like uh, for the Fed hikes could be less aggressive, uh, hopefully. And maybe like uh, could like uh, maybe, uh, because I don't think the, the continuous aggressive hikes and could really solve the problems of the inflation because this time the inflation is not only the demand side, most of the time it's uh, driven by the supply side, including the, like uh, the commodity prices and uh, structure, like a lack of this uh, like uh, services labor and also the like uh, the prices. So we think the uh, less hikes or maybe uh, more like a preemptive actions and uh, could like uh, calm down the market. 
And the second, I guess, like uh, for the Chinese, like um, for this kind of the companies, not only for Chinese companies, I guess, like uh, I heard like uh, the earliest uh, uh, could, uh, could be starting from last, next Monday and the deposit will gradually give back to the, uh, the depositors. So we guess that could be like uh, for the deposit, because of the, um, the potential risk remains. So I guess like many of the depositors could move away the, uh, the money to the large banks. So the large banks could be a beneficiary. So I guess like for the Chinese banks, especially for the SOEs, actually it's uh, um, to some extent and it's position stressing, uh, stressing like uh, uh, during this kind of the, like a turmoil, including like uh, the big banks like in the US side. And we think the like uh, less um, risky like uh, for those banks. But the overall, I think the, uh, we think the bailout of the like uh, for the U.S. government these times is very very rapid and also very aggressive. Uh, calm down the market, but it's also reflecting some of the like uh, loopholes. We don't know like uh, the the recession when will come, whether the recession is mild or the series, and like uh, uh, whether the government can finally like uh, solve all the like uh, the mess if the, if they come. So I think that the uh, now the market actually become more, much more cautious. Uh, so we think that although the short term. Uh, the market comes down, but uh, still have the uh, rising concerns, especially on the U.S. economy for the Fed hikes and for the health of the, like, especially for the tech companies. We're out of, we're out of, go ahead, Lu Feng, you want any? Because we're out of time. Okay, brief, brief, eight, a couple of points and to the, to the, to, to, to Ethan's and comments, I agree, which I agree. So I think there's uncertainties also have implications for the China-US relationships. And certainly number one, you know, and maybe this event after, you know, and uh, decisive and, uh, and approach taken by the, governments, you know, the issue will go away quickly. Okay, that will only be temporary issue, but uh, whether there could be some feedback to the wider, you know, and the financial sector caused uh, 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 event, uh, you know, in the worst situation, like the, what happened in the, uh, a decade ago. So if that happened, what's the implication for China and US relationships? Number two, you know, and uh, if, for example, and the United States and have to give up the, the hardliner of the monetary policy to control inflation, you know, then the inflation become a structural issue. We were, it reminds us of what happened in 1970s, you know, so in that scenario, you know, I think there may be also have implications for China-US relationships. So anyway, this is a, a short-term issue, but they maybe have a long-term implications. There are a lot of discussions actually in academic circles in China on these issues. Before we lose you, Lu Feng, what's your outlook for the RMB over the next few years? Actually, I, I think if you look, uh, uh, of course, I'm not market economist. I'm not in position in project. Maybe even have a better opinion on that. But uh, for me, as academic and economist, if you look back over the last three or five years, actually, there's uh, 
there's a real reform in the mechanism of the IMB, you know, functioning. Actually, you can see in recent years, IMB, you know, and several times, maybe three times, you know, and uh, lower uh, than seven and higher than seven, they fluctuate, you know, and quite with a quite big swing more than 15%, I think. So, so I think there's a, a quite substantial reform effect has been demonstrated already. So in future, actually in the two sessions, you can see the official, uh, the, the statement about the IMB is still the same. They keep the IMB stable, but in line with the fundamentals you know, of the IMB. So I think the policy stance will be uh, the similar, but, the specific, specific parity of the IMB vis-a-vis -vis US dollar or a, or, or, or a basket of currencies can fluctuate, especially just now we talk about uh, the, the, the problems in the American uh, financial sector, if you know it goes further deteriorated, you know then your monetary policy will change the policy stance or very uh, hardlining, you know, and even in the extreme scenario, you give up the the two percent of the inflation target. I think that will have a huge potentially have a huge implications for the parity of IMB in the uh, medium medium term. So. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but uh, two points clear, you know, uh, market determined to some extent. Second, a lot of uncertainties in future in terms of the parity. Thank you. Yifan, you're the market economist. Where do you think it's going? <laughs> okay, so uh, as a market economist, we would like to give some forecast, no matter it's right or not. So in our view, uh, I think that for the US, like a uh, since now the Fed continues hiking, and we think the dollar will keep its strength until uh, the peak of the hike. So in this case, probably the, uh, the dollar will continue to strengthen until maybe the second quarter. Then maybe the Fed will pause. And I guess like, uh, uh, so this, uh, this year we think that for the second half, maybe the dollar strength will gradually weaken, weakening. And also given for the, uh, like, uh, for the divergence of the China, China's growth and also the US growth this year, we think actually the, uh, the CNY will gain its uh, uh, strength like uh, for the second half. So we, uh, our focus currently is the GDP will, uh, for, the, for the CNY will like uh, for the USD CNY will back to the 6.5. So for the longer term, and I want to like uh, just like mention that like uh, for the, uh, the continuous like a uh, CNY internationalization, and we also note that like uh, for the oil CNY, for the digital currency, and also for uh, for the China's like uh, maybe uh, the the gold denominated by the uh, like uh, for the CNY, also for this kind of the like uh, uh, like uh, CNY's continuous like rising shares could be like in the SDR. I think that could be like uh, uh, could be like uh, reflecting the China's like. Uh, Mm, the same was like uh, uh, the importance, rising importance in global, uh, like uh, for the financial system. So, and also actually this one, I want to mention like uh, one of the interesting topic and also, I guess it's also one of the highlight in the two session. So that's for the digital economy and the digital currency. So I think the, uh, we probably noticed that like uh, for the digital economy, 
The fundamentals means like a data. So including now the most hottest topic like a chat GPT. Chat GPT can catch the like uh, tension but cannot like make revenues. But the, what's the underlying uh, the key factor is the data. So now the data has become very important like a factor for the production. So I think that for in this two session, the, China, the Chinese government have the sweeping institutional reforms to focus on strategic sectors. For the data, actually, is one of the strategic sector. So especially for the Chinese government to now identify data as one of the new factors of the production alongside the land, capital, labor, and the tech. So I think that China is probably the first country and to put the data as a, such a strategic position. So we expect the like, uh, so we have this new entity called the National Data Bureau. So it's on the NDRC to, re, to enforce data regulation and the digital economy related policy. Um, so it's also, we think the more policy supports will be expected to enhance data security and promote digital economy st strategy. And also, of course, like uh, the data usage and the collection, this is a new field to like a global economy. I think this part, the supervision will also be stressing. And also we expected like uh, maybe uh, some of the regulations and the law will, will come out. So I say like in the data, uh, like uh, the, this sector for the digital economy, probably China is uh, at the as one of the leaders, like uh, uh, globally. Last, last question, I promise. The, um, you know, we, we deal a lot with misconceptions of China in the United States and of the United States in China. What do you think are the primary economic misconceptions that the US or and China have about each other? <clears throat> okay, <laughs> I think I have a thought it's a, uh, I, my view for the China and the US like um, for this kind of the fundamentals is uh, originated, including all this kind of the global order, that's so-called global order. So I think that for the US, uh, probably think it's a successful, it's a success, uh, it's a for the global order since Second World War. So that means like a global growth in, uh, like for internationalization, including for the China's like a rapid growth. So, but the in under this system, I guess like uh, with the China's rising China, the China might think uh, there's uh, many things that are still not that fair. So for example, for economically, like financially, I think it's still like the dollar dominant, like for the financial system. And it's already showing some of the weakness during the financial crisis. And also for, for example, the, 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 the serious spill over effect, for example, for the SVB, like the small case, regional case of the US could affect a global financial system. So I think there are lots of these kind of similar issues and make the China maybe probably wants to, um, I guess like uh, to improve or maybe make some of the like the uh, contributions. So I guess like uh, it's uh, probably that's uh, what we call the fundamental difference, <laughs> the disagreement 
but uh, that's I think that can only be solved by the time and also by the maybe uh, maybe like a dynamic of the development like uh, globally. Um, yeah, so I think the probably both sides think like uh, it's uh, like uh, have it's the points, but I guess cannot really understand each other. The China might think that global order is more like a US order. <laughs> US, US will think it's global order is successful. The China is not wants to challenging the order, but wants to make it a better order. But uh, I guess that could be uh, this kind of dynamic development evolution going forward. Lu Feng, anything on that one? Yeah, I, I think actually, uh, the, the, of course, any society, uh, you know, have some misconceptions for their, you know, and the peers, you know, especially in the old days, for example, I remember in, in the old days of my childhood, we are taught that, you know, the rest of the world, including U.S., the people living in the misery, you know, so they are waiting for us to liberalize, you know, so eventually we, we find out that it's not actually true, you know, so so I think a lot of misconceptions has uh, faded away in the reform and opening period because the people have access to new knowledge, even travel, you know, and globally, but there's still, of course, some lopsided opinions in certain constituencies, of the society, you know, in China towards uh, America, for example, in economic areas, uh, we sometimes, some people think, you know, the all the major policy, uh, they are controlled by the so-called military and industrial complex, okay, uh, so as to maximize the revenue or profits of selling arms, you know. So uh, a lot of people don't agree with that anymore, but some people still agree with that. Uh, another example is, for example, and at the beginning of the new century, when there's a debate about the IMB, you know, exchange rate. So a lot of people tend to, even and the serious you know, professional economists, tend to think that the pressure from the United States, you know, to impose on China, to ask China to appreciate or make the IMB fluctuate, you know, and flexible, is sort of set a trap you know, to, to, to induce China get into the trap, similar to what Japan uh, did, you know, in the 80s. I think all these kind of things uh, is lopsided opinion. Actually, now you're looking back, actually, a lot of people have a reflection on that. But at that time, a lot of people believe that. So this, you can see misconceptions. But Steve, uh, actually, I still think the current problems of China-US relationships is getting worse or not better, you know, for some time to come. It's not only caused by misconceptions, but also caused by some real differences in position, you know, in the history, in the value system, in the principle of the governance. You know better than me, you know, you know better. Actually, I read some books by some your new uh, China's experts, the young generations after 80s, you know, like the Rush Dosh, you know, like the, like Julian, uh, what, what's the name? Works. You know, uh, Kurtz, yeah, Julian Kurtz and the unlikely partners. All these people are, traveled in China, living in China, or even worked in China. They know China much better than the older generation of the experts. But unfortunately, you can see, you know, their position are not more, how can I reconcile, you know, towards China, but very, 
uh, tough. I can say that. So that indicates actually we have some real differences have to be resolved in uh, in uh, in the long time to come. Okay, through different ways. So I think uh, in this context, I think a national committee, you know, and of you guys have a lot of work to do. You know, uh, a lot of very important mission. You know, well, that that's uh, that's why we asked the question you. so that we can focus on where. There aren't differences, but their perceptions are different. So yes, when there are true differences, we just point them out and move on. But when the problem is based upon incorrect facts, incorrect data, then we try to correct. Ifan, Lu Fang, thank you so much. You're both great participants in our dialogue and great um, interviewees for this 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 attempt to educate Americans about what is going on in China's economy. But thank you both so much for giving so generously of your time. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.